Keith, there we go. If you attend here on a regular basis, you, you know that we typically have a video before each message that ties in somehow with a sermon. That video has absolutely nothing to do with the message today. I just really wanted to show it to you. So sorry for the departure there from our usual routine. Today we're continuing our sermon series, The Acts of the Apostles, with a message that I've been really looking forward to writing before this week. And uh, then all throughout the week I've been anticipating sharing it with you this morning because what happens in this portion of our story as we continue our journey alongside Paul and his companions is such a wonderful statement about how we can experience the victory of Christ not only, of course, beyond death, as we know that once we, we leave this world, we get to have fellowship with the Father in heaven, but it's also a statement about realizing the victory of Christ in the here and now, while we're still here on this earth. And that is really important, obviously, to each one of us individually, but also for the rest of the world that isn't following Jesus Christ. Because if people consistently see Christians living triumphantly over and even through the struggles that most commonly plague our society, then our testimony about the gospel working in our lives will not only be what they hear from us, but it will also be what they actually see happening in us, right? And that's huge because I believe that one of the greatest indictments against the church, which then gets transferred to the Christian faith, that exists in our culture today is the disparity between what so many Christians say about having Christ in their lives and what other people actually see that is coming out of Christians' lives, right? Because if we're to have any credibility at all with unbelievers, our lives have to actually reflect our faith claims. Otherwise, it's all just a bunch of talk. And there's a point at which I think most people become fed up with talk. And they want to see real results. And so this entire subject of living in victory over and through the struggles that society most commonly grapples with is paramount, not only to our personal state of being, but also to the effectiveness of the church as a whole. Because in my opinion, a large part of the reason that so many are leaving and have already left the church in this generation is because they don't see any difference between us and the rest of the world. It's all become a lot of tired discourse with a lot, uh, without a lot of results. Okay? If, if we're defeated in our marriages, just like everyone else, and defeated in our relationships, and defeated at our jobs, and defeated in our circumstances, like everyone else who's struggling without any good answers to what ails them, then why is the gospel any better of a solution to our messed up marriage than an illicit affair? Why choose Jesus over an illegal drug that drowns out the world and kills our pain for a little while? How is following Christ any better than cheating our way to a better job or a promotion? Right? If, if our response to hardship is the same as everyone else's in the world, what makes the gospel worth a second glance? Something has to be different about those who follow Christ. And there has to be real evidence of that difference that is outwardly recognizable if we've any hope of getting people to listen to the message of Christ. Okay, there's supposed to be a difference. What difference? There's supposed to be evidence in the life of the Christian of a victory that has been won. A victory over sin and hopelessness. And of course that doesn't mean we're perfect, not by a long shot. It means that we can live a life that is fully redeemed and full of hope even though we're not perfect. And that all sounds great. 
of course, except that quite often just when things are looking up and we, we feel that sense of overcoming, maybe a great uh, peace about our lives, an unexplainable joy, their inner strength that shows up and everything seems to be going our way, and then life happens. And we find ourselves all muddled up in turmoil again, and maybe we react much the same way that society expects us to. We either have a meltdown or we reach for the temporary comforts of this world. And, and the watching world says, yeah, those Christians, they're no different than the rest of us. You know, might as well sleep in on Sunday because there's nothing real about that. And so I think there's a question here that we need to answer. How do we experience victory in our lives even when everything else is falling apart? How do we experience victory when we're in the middle of an epic struggle in our lives? And we need to answer that question, again, not for our own personal benefit only, but for the sake of a hurting world that needs to know why they should turn to Christ instead of every other remedy that is available to them. And, and once the answer to that question is settled in us, we can declare a victory in our lives no matter what is happening to us. And it will be a victory that the rest of the world cannot deny because the evidence of it will be conspicuous. It will be unmistakable. It will be obvious to everyone. And this is just what we see happening with the Apostle Paul consistently throughout his life and mission. And particularly in our story today. Paul declares his life a victory. Even when to the casual observer, it would have appeared as anything but a victory. Right? Here's a guy who's beaten, arrested, accused, falsely, hated, put into prison. That doesn't look victorious to the casual observer. But as you look closer and you listen intently, you can hear the voice of Paul declaring his life a total victory. And equally as important... You can actually see the results of that victory in the wake of his life and mission by the lives of so many that were eternally changed after encountering Christ in Paul. So we're going to pick up the story today in chapter 21 at verse 37 where we left off last week with a message entitled Declaring Victory. And although this topic could easily be a sermon series in itself, let's see if we can answer that question today. How do we experience victory in our lives? even when everything seems to be falling apart, okay? So let's turn there together, Acts chapter 21. We'll start on verse 37, and Paul's just been arrested by the Roman guards, which saved him from being beaten to death by an angry mob that formed against him. And you'll recall from last week that we discussed the enemy at the gates, and we saw how our adversary uses lies and violence and confusion to come against Paul which are the same devices that he uses against us today. And just as Paul would appear to us at, at this moment in his life to be at his lowest point, right? he's been arrested, falsely accused, beaten up. He's facing heavy scrutiny by the Roman authorities, knowing, because the Holy Spirit had already warned him, that more trouble was ahead of him. And instead of cowering in fear, instead of giving up, thrown in the towel, instead of caving to the pressure that is clearly bearing down on him, we see Paul steadfast in his faith and firm in his resolve, sharing his testimony to this angry mob. And then we get to chapter 23, and he makes a subtle and yet remarkable statement about his life, given his circumstances, which by all rights look impossibly bleak. 
And so we'll pause a few times along the way here, as we always do. But for the most part, we'll move fairly quickly through the remainder of chapter 21, all the way through chapter 22, because it's mostly Paul sharing his story, which we've already been working through for the past several months. And so we'll move through his testimony quickly. And then when we get to the first few chapters of chapter 23, we'll stop in a couple places as Paul reflects on his life up to this point. And then, of course, he also looks ahead to a, a quite uncertain future. So let's read together at verse 37 of chapter 22, 21, excuse me. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? And Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. So just to clarify what the Roman commander is talking about when he asks Paul if he's the Egyptian who recently led a revolt. A few years before this, a self-proclaimed Egyptian prophet led thousands of people out into the wilderness in a plot to overthrow the Romans. Josephus, a, a Jewish historian, gives us quite a bit of detail that we don't get from our text here about that event. And there were assassins, or they called them dagger men, uh, that would go into these large crowds in Jerusalem to terrorize the Roman sympathizers by stabbing them under the cover of these large crowds wherever people would gather. And so the whole revolt comes to a head. And there's a significant battle that occurs, and thousands of the Egyptians' uh, prophets' followers are killed by the Romans, who were being led by Felix, the Roman governor at the time. But the Egyptian prophet himself escaped, and they couldn't find him. It was kind of like Osama bin Laden before we found and killed him. And so the Romans have been looking everywhere for this Egyptian prophet, and the Roman tribune assumes here that Paul is the Egyptian prophet who's been finally captured. And so Paul explains to him who he actually is, and he requests to speak to the crowd, which for the record is amazing in and of itself. Paul has just been beaten up by these people who are calling for his death, and instead of allowing himself to be whisked away by the Romans, who will at least offer him some safety and some form of due process, Paul, all beat up, probably bruised and bleeding at this point, asks to stay there and address the crowd. And so the Roman gives Paul permission to speak, and what follows is an utterly gripping description uh, and defense of Paul's life. Verse 40. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous before God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. In other words, I've tried it my way, which was the way of the world. I was raised in this great city. I received the very best education. Uh, Gamaliel was a Pharisee among Pharisees. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was, in fact, the most prominent rabbi of, in his day, and he was Paul's teacher. So Paul says, my pedigree is as good as anyone's. 
And with great passion and effectiveness, I might add, I pursued and punished and persecuted the way. And that word way in the ancient Greek is the word hadas. It means way of life. Uh, in other contexts, it can mean a road or a highway. But Paul's saying here, I not only have the pedigree of a model Jewish Pharisee, but I pursued this way of life, the path to Christianity and all those who are on it, with the intent of destroying it more than any of you have here today. With such vigor, in fact, that the high priest and all the elders themselves can verify it. Okay, and then Paul continues, verse 6. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. Just pause there for a second. We don't want to skip over that comment by Paul. He throws in this extra description of Ananias intentionally, saying he was a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. Paul's making sure that these Jews listening understand that once again, a highly respected Jew can vouch for his story. Okay? Verse 13. So Ananias came to me, and standing by me, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. Again, Paul appeals to the Jews' Jewishness. He says that well-respected, upstanding Jew Ananias told him, on good authority, that the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will. Okay, Paul's highlighting the fact about who it is that it called him to be doing what he's doing. He says, not only uh, can all of these pious, respected Jews vouch for what I'm telling you today, but the very God of our fathers, the same God that we all claim to serve, is the one who called me to this work. Okay, verse 15. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard, and now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. Then I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. It's another reference to the good religious Jews who should be able to verify Paul's story. Verse 20. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now, lest we think that Paul is pandering to this angry mob of Jews because they're trying to kill him. And up to this point, it would be easy to come to that conclusion. With all of the overt references he's making about the well-known, well-respected Jews that can attest to his upbringing and his past efforts as a religious zealot bent on destroying this Christian movement the way, just when it seems like he's pandering to the crowd, Paul drops a bombshell. 
He says something that he knows good and well will not be popular with this audience. But from the moment that Paul started following Jesus Christ, he stopped following the crowd. And he, he stopped being ruled by his circumstances. Because Paul understood that our victory is not dependent upon our circumstances. Our victory is not dependent on our circumstances. As followers of Jesus Christ, we're promised a victorious life. And not just the life after this life. Not just when we get to heaven. We're actually promised a life of victory now. Not necessarily a life that is always easy or free of difficult circumstances. Not at all. But one that allows us to overcome those circumstances. We no longer have to live in defeat as followers of Jesus Christ. And John the Apostle teaches us this plainly in 1 John 5, the first five verses. He says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is exactly what we're seeing Paul live out in front of all of Jerusalem. His faith is his victory, not his circumstances. Clearly not his circumstances. If what he's going through, his circumstances, on any given day becomes the litmus test for the measure of victory in his life, and, and let's just throw in all of the other apostles' lives into the conversation here as well. If their circumstances are the means we use to measure the level of victory or defeat for the Christian life, then let's just sell the building and go home. Because under those criteria, all of the apostles' lives become a colossal failure. Their circumstances and Paul's, as we see in our story here today, couldn't be any worse. And yet their faith, which was their victory, couldn't have been any stronger. And this is the key to declaring and living in victory that eludes so many Christians today, as Paul shows us here. Our victory is not dependent upon our circumstances. On the contrary, our victory is dependent upon our faith. So often our faith is submitted. We submit our faith to our circumstances. We allow our circumstances to rule over our faith when it should be the other way around. And I understand that our faith can be built up based on God's moving on our behalf in our circumstances. That's true. But we make a profound error when we allow our faith to falter any time our circumstances seem to be working against us. As if victory or defeat rises and falls on the back of the circumstances in our lives that can change on a daily basis. Paul's faith had overcome the world. That's why he was able to stand in front of hundreds and even thousands of people at times who wanted to kill him and boldly proclaim the truth, knowing that it may very well make his circumstances even worse. Because Paul's joy and his peace and his comfort and his security and his hope, it all flowed out of his faith in Jesus Christ not out of his circumstances. He, he once wrote to the church in Philippi, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
Philippians 1.21. In other words, no matter what the world throws at me, I win. Because my victory isn't dependent upon my circumstances. It is rather found in my faith. My faith in Jesus Christ, who, by the way, never, ever changes. And so if faith is the key to victory that overcomes the world in our lives, then we need to take a closer look at how our faith can become stronger, if you will. Because faith and victory are inextricably linked. Okay, we can't separate the two. Let's get back to our story then. Because Paul says something very interesting coming up soon about his life. Just about the time his circumstances couldn't get any worse. Verse 22. Up to this word they listened to him. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. This is not something you ever want to experience in your life. Flogging was, was the worst kind of torture that you could receive at that point. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. But Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. You bet they did. And the tribune was also afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Okay, in the first century, in this culture, if someone punished a citizen of Rome without due process, that person could face the death penalty themselves. And so this tribune, which we learn later in chapter 23, was Claudius Lysias. He could have been executed for flogging Paul which they were just about to do. And I, I kind of like the fact that Paul let them stretch him all out and get him all ready before he says anything. So when verse 29 says Claudius was afraid, he had good reason to be afraid. And so he adjusts his approach to Paul, as we'll see. And then as we keep reading, we see Paul make what seems to be a fairly simple comment about his life, yet it was anything but simple. It was and is rather very powerful and insightful a statement about living victoriously as Paul teaches us that not only is victory in our lives dependent upon our faith, but our faith is expressed through our obedience. Okay? Now, to be clear, we know that ultimately our faith comes from God. Right? In Romans 12, 3, Paul says, For by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. God is sovereign over us. We can't even take credit for our own faith. And yet the way our faith is expressed is through our obedience to God. Certainly not based on our circumstances. Let's keep reading verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. That is a definitive statement by Paul who's not mincing words here when he tells these Jewish religious leaders that he's lived his life in good conscience before God. 
And you'll see what happens for it in a moment. Meaning, I may not be perfect, but to the best of my ability, I have been obedient to the will of God. My conscience is clear. Remember, Paul is standing there beaten up, nearly flogged, falsely accused by the leaders in Jerusalem, arrested by the Romans. He's at an impromptu trial because the entire city of Jerusalem, it says, has been stirred up against him. Now, imagine yourself for a minute getting beat up by a mob of people for something you didn't do and then arrested for what you didn't do and then drugged down to the courthouse because of something you didn't do by not-so-friendly police. And the entire city of Greenville is outside the courthouse anxiously awaiting and hoping that your conviction will soon be announced because all the headlines in the newspapers and on the television and on the internet say that you're guilty. You've already been convicted by the court of public opinion. And everyone on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram are posting pictures of you getting hauled off by the police and bragging about how they were there uh, to see you finally get caught. And there you stand before the judge in a situation, a circumstance that seems like the whole world has turned against you. You're in pain, you're hurting because you've been beat up and carried around by the police and now you're standing there before a judge and you've done absolutely nothing wrong and nobody believes you. Would you, in that circumstance, feel victorious? Or would you feel defeated in that moment? Because I'm pretty sure I'd be crying like a six-year-old girl. Oh God, why me? Why have you abandoned me, right? We get a cold and we cry out, Oh God, my life. But that's not what Paul does. Because Paul's faith has overcome his circumstances. His faith has overcome the world. And he has such an overwhelming sense of peace and confidence because his faith is in Christ. And it's so strong that despite all of the pressure that's bearing down on him, he confidently says simply this, my conscience is clear. I'm at peace. Even in the middle of all of this mess because I've done everything that God has told me to do. I've lived my life according to his will. Don't you want your faith to be so strong that no matter what happens to you, you can know that kind of peace and confidence in the middle of the biggest mess because your faith has overcome the world. Don't you want that in your life? I do. I certainly do. In fact, this statement by Paul is the greatest claim that any of us could ever hope to make at the end of our lives, that I've lived the way that God wanted me to. That is the ultimate declaration of victory. And yet so often we allow our victory or lack of it to be dictated by our circumstances when actually it should be the other way around. What Paul is saying here is the same point that John was making in 1 John 5 that we read earlier. Everyone who believes that Jesus is Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome like your circumstances are. For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one that believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Can you see how it all ties together? 
how victory comes by faith and faith is exercised and expressed as we do what he commands us to do, as we obey him. Our faith is not built up in disobedience to God. It's built up in obedience to his will, to his word, to his command in our lives. Our faith actually has little to do with our circumstances and everything to do with our obedience to God. And the truth is, we will never experience real victory in our lives in spite of our circumstances as long as we follow our own path instead of God's. Okay, the path to victory for the believer is walked out by faith in God and in obedience to His Word. And so, if being able to declare and live in victory is dependent upon our faith, and our faith is exercised in obedience, then we have to answer one more question. How do we pull that off? How do we actually live by faith obediently to God? When my life is falling apart and all my circumstances are conspiring against me and everywhere I turn, there seems to be trouble. How do I experience victory over those circumstances? By faith, through obedience. How, how is that actually accomplished? Our obedience is only accomplished by the Holy Spirit within us. We cannot, by our own power, by our own will, by our own determination, live a life of complete obedience to God. Ain't going to happen. No way. In all good conscience, as Paul puts it, without the power and the gifts of the Holy Spirit inside of us. And, and if we could, if we could do that without the Spirit of God, then why would He have bothered to send us the Spirit to begin with? He wouldn't have. He wouldn't have done it. Let's finish our portion of the story today, and then we'll talk about this point some more. Uh, chapter 23, starting at verse 2. The high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by Paul to strike him in the mouth. And then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. That's a quote from Jesus. He pulled that one out. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? And those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of the ruler of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. Paul isn't stupid. He knows their theology better than they do, and he uses it against them here. For the Sadducees say that there's no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. So as usual, Paul knows how to get the party started. He makes some comments that turn the legal process into a brawl. And out of fear that he'll be killed before they can get to the bottom of this whole mess, the Roman soldiers take Paul back to the jail for his own safety. You could easily make an entire television series out of one chapter of Paul's life. And yet, as tempting as it may be to hold him up on a pedestal because of his almost unbelievable boldness in about every situation he faces, we see once again in verse 11, the Holy Spirit, just as he has in so many other points in Paul's journey, 
giving Paul the strength and encouragement and reassurance and guidance that he needs to do what he's been doing. Let's read that last verse for today. Verse 11. It says, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And this sounds fairly innocuous, but it's not. The, the English translation of, the ver- of this verse 11 does not even come close to capturing the full weight and understanding of what was happening in this moment. When it says the Lord stood by him, the actual Greek text indicates that the Lord came and overshadowed him. He completely enveloped and overwhelmed Paul. The presence of the Spirit of God here was completely overwhelming. That alone, can you imagine the reassurance? Some of you can. You may have experienced it. As Paul alone and probably crouching in pain in his jail cell is overwhelmed by the Lord. And then he speaks words of encouragement to him. So obviously Paul wasn't doing any of this on his own. Paul was no superman. He simply understood that his strength came from God and that same spirit was sent to fill us and give us strength and encouragement and the reassurance that we need to actually do what God has commanded us to do. And just like Paul, that same Holy Spirit that lived inside of him lives inside of every believer and follower of Jesus Christ today. And the gifts of the Spirit that were given to Paul and the other apostles are also available to us today. Of course, there are Christians who disagree with that statement. And I still love you if you disagree. And I still want you to come here because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. But there are many believers who are what are called cessationists. That's a fancy theological term that means they don't believe that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are available to us today as they were to those first century apostles. And I talk about this every year in depth on Pentecost Sunday, which is coming at the end of May this year. So I won't go into it in depth now other than to say that one of the aspects of cessationism that really bothers me is the fact that cessationists are quick to point out uh, that Peter, for instance, assured us that we will suffer in this life for the sake of Christ. And he did. 1 Peter 2, 1 Peter 4, 1 Peter 5, he talks about it a lot. They're quick to point out that James assured us that we will suffer in this life for the sake of Christ. And he did in James chapter 5. Uh, They're quick to point out that Paul assured us that we will suffer for the sake of Christ, and he did in many places, including Romans chapter 5. And they're especially quick to point out that Jesus assured us that we will suffer for his name's sake, Jesus himself, and he did in many places in Scripture, including in John chapter 15. Okay, we can keep going here. You get the idea. My problem with this cessationist argument is that they want to make sure that we understand that we're promised to suffer and struggle for Christ in this life. But when it comes to the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the empowering work of the Holy Spirit, which, by the way, is the only way that Peter and James and Paul and Jesus were able to do what they did, the cessationists claim, well, that, that part doesn't apply to us today. That was only for the first century apostles, and as soon as they died, the gifts ceased. But the giant hole in that argument is just as Peter assured us of suffering and difficulty in this life, he also assured us that we would have the same Holy Spirit working in us as he did himself and in the others. And, and so why do we ignore that part of the promise? Peter said to the crowd in Acts 2, 38 and 39, who were trying to understand what was happening as the Holy Spirit was poured out on the believers there. They're all speaking in tongues. 
by the Spirit of God. And Peter preaches a sermon to the crowd. And at the end of it, he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise, the promise of what's going on here, what you're asking about is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. He didn't say a, holy, a different Holy Spirit is promised. He doesn't say a weaker Holy Spirit. He doesn't say a less active Holy Spirit. He said, what you see here today is a promise for everyone, now and in the future, whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Why do we ignore that part of the promise? James promised suffering. Yes, he did. And in James 5, 14 and 15, he also said, is any of, anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up until the first century ends and all the apostles are dead. No, it doesn't say that. I just made that part up. There is no expiration date on James's instructions here. And by the way, it wasn't written to the apostles. Yes, Paul promised suffering. And in his letter to a bunch of church people who were definitely not apostles and who surely outlived Paul and the others who were apostles, he says to them, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. 1 Corinthians 14.1. Come on. Jesus promised suffering. Yes, he also said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you through the first century. And then if you're still alive after that, you're on your own. No, I just made that part up. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Forever. John 14, 15, and 16. Okay, there aren't different versions of the Holy Spirit. There's one Spirit. And if He lives in you, then the spiritual gifts are available to you. But to be clear, you have to ask for them. And we get into the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we don't have time for that today. But you have to ask for those gifts. Otherwise, Paul would have, wouldn't have said, earnestly desire the gifts to a bunch of church people, right? Why desire for something that you already have? Or desire for something that you can never have. That doesn't make any sense. Right? We're to desire the gifts of the Holy Spirit because the same Spirit that resurrected Jesus Christ from the dead, the same Spirit who, who gave His gifts to the apostles and to others, He lives in you and me. And He wants to give us those gifts that only He can give. And furthermore, if you want to experience victory in your life by faith, through obedience to God, the kind of victory that overcomes the world and allows you to have peace and confidence and strength in any circumstance, the only way that you will ever experience that kind of victory is by the power and the gifts of the Holy Spirit working in your life. That is precisely the picture that we see in the life of Paul and the other apostles as well, for that matter. And of course, the single greatest example of a life of victory that overcame the very worst of circumstances is Jesus Christ himself. And so I want to close this morning with a bit of understanding from a passage that puzzled me for a long, long time. A passage of scripture 
that has profoundly changed the way that I view the life and particularly the death of Jesus Christ. And it relates directly to this subject of being able to declare a victory in our lives no matter our circumstance, okay? When Jesus was on the cross, dying, Matthew describes the scene in chapter 27. Just before he gasps his last breath, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's in Matthew 27, 46. And I have to be honest with you. After everything that Jesus did, and understanding who he was, and the fact that he knew that he was not only going to die for mankind, but he understood why. I'm just being perfectly honest with you. I always thought it a bit anticlimactic that the Son of God, who with all of his wisdom and understanding, not just in general, but in that very situation, knowing exactly why he was there and what was going to be accomplished by him being there, it always felt like a bit of a letdown to me that he would spend his final breath questioning the Father. You know, when you think about people who are about to be executed and they're given a chance to offer their final words, at least uh, from those who are in their right mind, you expect their deepest, innermost thoughts. You, you expect them to muster up the most profound and meaningful statement that they can possibly give in one sentence. And in fact, it's interesting to read some of those statements that have been made by those who have been executed over the years because you know they've had a long time to think about it. And indeed, some of those final words are very compelling. They're very thought-provoking. Some of them are profound. And so I guess I expected more of that from Jesus, who had plenty of time to think about what he would say in that moment. He knew why he was there. And yet what I read in Matthew always seemed more of a really sad expression of confused bewilderment. And for most of my life in church growing up, I heard it explained that because Jesus was shouldering the sin of the world, that in some way in that moment he had to be cut off from fellowship with the Father. And he couldn't fathom that, so he questioned the Father in that final moment of his life on earth. And again, I'm just being completely honest with you, that always left me with a bit of a sense of defeat. Even though I knew that Jesus rose from the dead later and conquered sin and death, that moment of triumph over the grave, which was his death, by the way, that moment when he conquered death and sin and hell at Jesus' last gasp, that one thing he said always felt like a bit of a defeat as he questioned the Father's absence. And that's what I believe for most of my life. But the truth is, there is immensely more that was happening in that moment than Jesus simply being bewildered by the Father turning away from all the sin. In fact, that's not a, it's not at all what I thought or what I was taught, which is at best an incomplete picture, okay? In the first century, the scripture that people had and knew was, of course, Old Testament scripture. And some of the most commonly quoted and well-known passages of scripture at that time were the Psalms, which, of course, are songs, right? The word psalm means hymn. These were songs that were sung and taught and quoted by God's people all the time. The religious people were very familiar with the Psalms. And if you think about it, a really famous song from our lifetime... A song that everyone would know really well. You can simply hear just the first line of that song and nothing else. And immediately you know what song it is. You know what it's about. 
you understand the message of that song, you know how it makes you feel, all just by hearing the first line of that song, because you know that song. It's like the old show, Name That Tune. For all the old folks and me in here, you remember, where they would play the first line of a song and the, the person listening would have to guess what song it was. And the more well-known the song, the easier it was to name that song. That's how songs and music in general work. The more you hear it, the more it, it stays with you to the point that just hearing the first line of a song can instantly recall the entire piece. Psalm 22 is one of those songs that was taught commonly in Jesus' day. It's a song that starts out as a great lament about suffering, but it ends in great victory over one's enemy. In fact, Psalm 22 was known as a song about victory over the enemy. In the worst of circumstances, when it seems the whole world is against you, Psalm 22 was the ultimate cry of victory over the enemy. And this song of victory was taught and known to them at the time that Jesus was hanging there on the cross. And so let's put Psalm 22 up on the screen and read just the first line. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Are you getting the picture? Jesus wasn't merely expressing some kind of bewilderment as he was dying on the cross. As he felt his life slipping away with the final breath in his lungs, he quotes the first line of one of the greatest songs about victory over our enemy that had ever been written. A familiar line to a familiar song. He was making a statement to the world, both to those there that day who were witnessing his death and everyone after who would ever read the Bible, that in that moment, in the worst circumstances that anyone could ever fathom having to face, he was claiming victory for all who would ever call upon his name forevermore. And then seconds later, the victory was won. Wow! Wow, can you feel the gravity of the difference in that passage in Matthew now from what seemed to be a sad statement of defeat to what is actually the greatest victory cry in the history of mankind. That's what I wanted to hear my whole life from the Son of God on the cross in His darkest hour, in His final moments, and yet He'd been saying it all along. I simply wasn't listening to the right voice. And if you're feeling defeated today, and you're a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, and you believe that you have to give in to your circumstances and claim defeat, then you're listening to the wrong voice. Because victory for you and me, victory that overcomes our circumstances and rises above all the lies and confusion and violence in this life that comes against us. That kind of victory is promised to us in His Word. In fact, it's ours for the taking. How do we experience victory in our lives even when everything seems to be falling apart? It comes by faith, through obedience, as we walk in the power of of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. You declare that victory over your life today in faith. Obey every command that He's given you and rely on the Holy Spirit to be your guide and your strength 
and you will experience victory that overcomes all of your circumstances.